This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Mark Andre Kournoye. How are you doing? Very good, yourself. Good. So you sort of got your start in open source, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, I did quite a lot of project. I tried to get into open source for uh, multiple times with smaller project. At the t- back in the days when I was doing like C Sharp, I was in a .NET community. Mm-hmm. And I kind of uh, got into a big open source project at the time. I think it's still there. It's called uh, Monorail. And as you can guess, it was a port of uh, Rails to .NET. Mm-hmm. And Active Record too. So I kind of uh, recoded the code generator for Rails into that language. And so I got into the, I got a commit as a committer into the project. And that's how I got my official, if you want, like a big start in open source. So I got accepted as a committer because I made one contribution. So, mm-hmm. but still, I, have, I still have my name on that page now. And I was very proud of that. And that's how I got started. But I guess most people know me because I wrote my most popular work as Mintin, the web server. Mm-hmm. But I did multiple things before that, right? Before I got that project that became more popular, like the .NET world. I also was in, uh, did quite a few projects in classic ASP, right? So that uh, was an awful language, but still, like, it was missing lots of tools. So I was just. I would just like port the tools I would see in Ruby to those languages that was uh, forced to use at my job. Yeah, yeah. Which is a good trick, actually. Yeah. So when you're getting started and you're in the language that you ate, like just porting things from other languages is uh, amazing, right? Yeah. So and you don't even need to, to have the original good idea. You can just uh, exactly, bring it over. Exactly. Because initially, I find that's the thing that is hard. When you're getting started, you don't know. Like a lot of people want to get into open source. They say, oh, I'll just contribute to Rails because they don't have ideas. They don't, they don't know what would be a successful project. So just porting a project from a different language is a very good way to get started. So mm. it's true for business, right? It's true for open yeah. source too. So Absolutely. Imitation is, is fine. Yeah. So you started off as doing all this open source, and then you uh, quit your job and started selling um, learning materials, I guess you could call them. <laughs> content. Yeah. Let, let the, well, there's a lot that happened between the time that I did the open source project, and I, I tried m- multiple times to start a business and failed Okay. Uh, in different ways, but the the yeah, the first I, actually how I get started in uh, selling products, info products mainly, was with my book How to Create Your Own Programming Language. Mm-hmm. I wrote that book maybe like six years ago, something like that. So I was still at my job, and my goal was not really to quit my job with that. I was just uh, I just finished reading like the four hour work week. Mm-hmm. You've read that, I guess yep. most people have. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually when I wrote, read those types of book, I, I try to apply what I read from there. So I just, like yeah, I read the Muse chapter in which he describes how to test an idea and see if it works. So I did exactly that. And I bought some AdWords. Maybe if you remember from the book, like he, mm-hmm. he suggests like buying AdWords for maybe $200, something like that, and just testing if your idea can get a few conversion. Mm-hmm. So I did exactly that. And I did get a few conversions. So I said, hey, what the hell? Like I get maybe like four signups. And this would be like people that gave you their email that said, like, let me know when this book launches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible landing page. Like, but it was like six years ago. It was kind of, it's not like today. Like today you see like a new ebook each week or so, even like a few a handful each week. So mm-hmm. it's pretty crazy. But back in it, well, back in the day, like that's six years ago, it's still not a big time, but mm-hmm. still it was not the same thing for ebooks. Trying to sell an ebook online was 
a lot harder. Uh, but with that sale page, the, the turning point for me was that I people saw that I was charging money. So it was pretty, pretty clear, like the book was maybe $30 or something like that on a landing page. And people did click and then enter their real email. So that was a, a big moment to me, to me. Like I would realize, wow, I can myself ask money online. Those people don't even know me. And I just like the page was awful. It would just say like, uh, I want to. I'm going to write a book that tells you how to create a language that has indentation like Python. That was my big selling point, like mm -hmm. indentation like Python. Mm -hmm. And like not a lot of people, but just a handful sign up. And that was the the big kick in the pants for me to say, hey, let's just do this. Let's try to write a book, uh, even though was I never wrote a book before. And my English is not far from perfect, especially your written is a lot more awful than my spoken. So you can imagine. Mm. Uh, so, but I did it and... It was a relative success uh, for me at the time. Yeah. So after after you got those signups, you said, "Okay, I'm going to go go through and do it." And you did. How long did it take you from that point? Uh, I think I spent maybe a month, all the nights, trying to write the book. Uh, maybe a little bit more because it was very hard for me to try to understand what what should be the logical order. Maybe if you've tried to go into programming languages, you've heard about the Dragon Book. Have you heard about this one? Yeah, it's like the compiler book. Yeah, the Dragon Book. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's one thousand page long. It's a big book. It's an impossible to finish uh, unless you're, I don't know, unless you're forced to finish it. Right. So I thought I'm going to write a shorter book because I don't have any choice because I cannot write a big book. So uh, I ended up being very short. I think it was sixty page long at the beginning, or even shorter than that. And I started reading stuff about marketing and sales online, and they recommended like bundling with other stuff, like a screencast and other stuff if you can. Mm -hmm. So I tried to instead of selling it as an ebook, I kind of sold it as a system, right? right. So I add a few screencasts, bundle it with uh, source code for different programming languages, and I add something else that I forgot initially. Oh yeah, a forum which didn't work. Out as well as I expected, so I removed it, and that's how I ended up selling it at forty dollars, I think, initially. Gotcha. Is it still selling today? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Almost as much as the as initially, and the reason for that is because I have uh, affiliate marketers, people mm. selling it for me, and they get fifty percent cut. So you can go on the site right now. You go at the bottom, and you can sell the book for me. I'm gonna give you fifty percent. That's how affiliate marketing work. Mm -hmm. But I was very lucky because one of my first affiliate was uh, Peter Cooper. Uh huh. Right. Yep. So, and uh, it was a huge audience, huge audience. And he was really, I think we, we were both, both of us, me and Peter, we were, we talked to exchange a few tricks initially about marketing. We were both kind of into the internet marketing thing. And we tried to find some ways to promote products. And obviously, he had a much bigger audience than me. So he kind of was trying some, I guess he was trying some tricks with my products and he ended up being very good success. Mm hmm. And also approach other, uh, Giles Bucket was to one of my affiliates. So I had some pretty big names, right? So that's how we got started. So when did you actually make the jump of, of doing this full time? Was it after that book or had you other made other products? Um, after that book, no, I was still at my job, but we kind of all, it was a startup. So I've been part of the startup community. I was in the startup community in Montreal here for about maybe uh, five years or so, something like that. So we got laid off from the job right a, a bit of a few months after I uh, wrote that book. Mm. And uh, me, what you do after you've been laid off from a startup is in your part of the startup is you try to start your own startup, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what my friend and I did. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know anything about business. So uh, it was called, the product we built was called Talker. It was a kind of a copy of Campfire, but mm -hmm. improved, kind of an improved Campfire. Mm -hmm. 
but the sale didn't come in, right? So we maybe we did $200 in the first two, three months. So mm -hmm. it was okay. But for us, in our eyes, we were expecting like to make a living out of this in one month, right? We said, hey, in 30 days, we're going to pay yourself a full salary and mm -hmm. be uh, very rich and whatnot so, and without doing any marketing and whatnot. So that's what our idea is. And we, so we got to add the big deception there. Mm. The, on the plus side, we did manage to sell it at a decent price, but we use all of our uh, savings at the time to build or to sustain ourselves to reach yep. that point. Yep. And when you sell your company, it takes a bit of time before the money comes in. So we had to get a job. So I did get a job at another startup, which I didn't really like, but I used that time to learn everything that I could about marketing and sales because I knew that was the my big weakness at the time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anything about marketing and selling. So I spent that whole year at that startup learning about marketing and selling. Mm -hmm. And so that's where at the end of that year, almost uh, the same day, I think I said, okay, I just quit the, my job without any product idea. And I say, all right, so I'm just going to quit and then I'm going to figure some way to make a living out of this. So doing the same thing that I did with my book, but just at a much bigger scale that I can pay myself a salary and sustain me and my family. Mm. You spent a year learning about marketing and sales. What were the biggest things you took away from that? My biggest takeaway is that marketing and sales has been around for a very long time, right? So we have not, like the internet marketers today or the social engineer, whatever they call themselves, mm -hmm. have not invented anything. They're just reusing some of the same principles that have been there forever, forever. Mm -hmm. So I didn't enjoy any of the recent book or whatnot, but I did enjoy a lot of the old books. Like on uh, one of the more recent one was called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Yeah, that's good. I've read this one. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. Uh, but I also read much older books like uh, Claude C. Hopkins. What was it called? Scientific Advertising or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of was written in the 1920s, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a very good book, but when you read it, you realize he's using the same tricks that people talk about today, like in marketing. And you see in those blog posts, like 10 ways to blah, 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 blah. Those are just rematch principles that you didn't knew back in the day. So if you study how people have been successful back in the day, you can mm -hmm. just reproduce that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips on there? Like what, how would you summarize some, some of those ideas? Well, the, I think the biggest takeaway from influence from Robert Cialdini, he has some principles in there, like in the book. Uh, and the, those are the principles that I use all day. I try to keep in mind all the time when I build a sales page or like try to launch a new product. But the two main ones that I think a lot of people forget about that have been very successful for me are uh, urgency and scarcity. Mm. Uh, what a lot of people do is they launch a product and they say, oh, okay, I just finished my ebook you can buy it now and they expect people to come in huge ways maybe if you launch something because it's new it's going to work initially but it's not going to work as great as if you put a lot of urgency mm -hmm. so it's not that the point is not to force people to buy it's to force people to make a decision now because if they go on your sales page you've made all this work to get them to your sales page if they don't buy now they're going to go away and never come back again unless you get their emails but that's another story. Mm -hmm. So you have to put a lot of pressure to say, make a decision now. So usually what I say I do is I limit the quantities. Uh, you can do a discount, all that sort of stuff. So that was very, that was a big uh, help for me at the beginning when I initially got very successful with my classes. Gotcha. So what was the first thing you did when you decided to go full-time with info products? 
well, so it took me a few days to figure out what I do. So I did quit my job and I didn't have any idea what I was should, would be doing. So uh, I, I don't remember. Oh, yeah. So I got the idea from Amy Hoy. Maybe, do you know Amy mm -hmm. Hoy and yep. Thomas Fuchs? Uh, Fox, it, I am not sure who pronounced it. Yeah, not sure either. Slide. And so they were doing a JavaScript masterclass online. So I thought it was a pretty good idea. And it seemed to be right. very successful. Mm -hmm. like, well, Amy is very successful in everything she's doing. So I just said, oh, I'm just going to copy that over and do it with something that I know. So I don't know JavaScript, but I know Rails. So I did a Rails class a more and a, something that I didn't want it to do. I didn't want it to do something that was for beginners. So mm -hmm. I thought maybe I'm just going to try to do a class for uh, advanced programmers for Rails. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I got the idea with my first class called uh, Owning Rails. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got a lot of help from Peter Cooper, once again, who helped me launch my class. So I did contact all the affiliates that helped me promote the book and ask them if they were interested in getting a cut and promote my class. Mm -hmm. So I did that up front. And so I got a kind of a big push initially with the class because of that. Uh, and it sold out like the first time that I did the class, it sold out in um, 24 hours or less, something like that, mm -hmm. because of Peter Cooper mainly. So yeah. it was not a, no magic there, but thanks a lot to Peter Cooper once again. And so what was the, how much was the class? I think it was 400 something, uh -huh. uh, 40, which is over two days, four hour each days. Gotcha. And this was like you like talking live to the group of students, basically? Yeah, yeah. So it's talking live to the group of students. It's kind of what we're doing now, but I share my screen and I use Adobe Connect, mm -hmm. uh, which is okay for that kind of stuff. So and I record everything and mostly I'm, I do live coding. So lots of live coding during the class. So the, the owning rails, my idea was that I'm going to just reuse the same way that I use uh, usually for learning thing is that I'm going to recode, uh, recode Rails. Mm. And then on the second day, we're going to use that knowledge that we gained by recoding Rails to learn to dive into the source code of Rails. Mm. I did have to polish that idea quite a few times, but it, the concept is still the same today. It has evolved quite a bit and it's, it's been very successful. Hmm. I noticed you don't have any uh, upcoming masterclasses scheduled. You have two others besides the Rails one. Have, are you moving away from that now that you have uh, the Great Code Club? And can you talk about that? Um, no, I'm not, not really moving away from it. But uh, yes, I'm, I've been doing that for three years now. So just, just taking a break. Well, maybe, yeah, taking a break, I guess. But also with anything, the popularity is going a little bit down. So I'm kind of, well... I guess you guys know too, you guys have several products and whatnot. So at some point, like maybe it's not, the, I guess it's not the same thing. I don't have any like SaaS product or let you sell on a recurring revenue by the code club is the first one that I have. Mm -hmm. But I re, I've seen like for any info product, like the, there's going to be a curve, right? So it's going to start to follow up at some point. So you can see it where it starts to follow up. So if that's your main revenue, you have to find another idea before you hit that uh, too low of a level. Yeah. Do you guys have noticed that too with your product, with your info product or your learning courses? Yes, uh, definitely. Okay. Uh, it trends low over time. We've seen, it takes us a surprisingly long time though. Like with our Backbone book, which is our most successful book by far, like it, it's, it still continues to sell, I wouldn't say like strongly, but regularly. Um, so I think as long as your topic is something that people are going to continue to be interested in, I guess it probably comes down to market size. Like people are still picking up Backbone, I think, and and still using yeah. Rails and, and need information on that. And so we sort of got lucky, I guess, and chose right and chose a thing that a lot of people went into and then sort of continued to keep going into and are maintaining apps that are in and things like that. Um, so we've seen demands for that to stay fairly strong.
Yeah. But in some of our other books where we haven't chosen as well, possibly, it's like that it falls off faster for sure. Yeah. But you think maybe it's sometimes you pick a good technology, right? That has been, it stays important or active, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking for the word there, but you know what I mean? Like it's some technologies go out of fashion. So it's kind of a, like I've been lucky that because all my courses have been about things that have been lo- around for a long time. So like Rails, programming languages, and Node, they're still around. But I guess if I chose a technology, I don't have any one in mind, but like that goes out of fashion. You're kind of doomed. Right. Because if your market shrinks, yeah. If you're, if you're yeah. a shrinking market, then you're, it's going to be trouble for you. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. with the programming thing, like your programming book, you, you, how to design your own programming language is perfect. Like that's always up to date in a way. Like because you're creating yeah. a new thing. And that's a great topic. It's applicable to programmers from any language, really. It's yeah. not just like, oh, this is for Rubyists, this is for Java people. It's just for anybody that wants to do it. So I think that's a, that's a really good topic, I think, for an ebook that you want to sell for a long time. Yeah, I guess so. That was not the objective initially, but I got lucky on that side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I've definitely seen like people get stopped by the idea that the I use Ruby in the book to teach how to... We use Ruby to rebuild the, a language. Mm-hmm. And some people are kind of uh, bummed by this. Too. Oh, can you do rewrite the book in JavaScript or in Python or in C, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Or I say, oh, maybe, but uh, it's kind of hard. I try to write, use Ruby, but just a very simple syntax. Like you don't use a prox in that types of things. So that's what I tried to do in the book. Yeah. It's amazing how people are, how sensitive people are to that. Like if, if it's not in their like favorite language, they're really turned off by it. And like there's this book that I recommend to a lot of people called Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests which is an awesome book about doing test-driven development and object-oriented design, and the language that it's written in is Java. And I'm always oh. like, you know, don't ignore the fact that it's Java. Like, I know that you're, you're not a super fan of that language, but, like, there's really good information in here. And it's tough for a lot of people to look past that, and some people just want will dismiss it outright. Yeah. Yeah, it is tough. Similarly, like, we have, like, a, a course on, like, doing test-driven development. And, like, test-driven development is basically all about the process, like learning how you do, like when do you write the test, when do you come over here, and, and learning the techniques there. In our test-driven development video, it's like they're, they're using Rails, the, the instructor's using like Rails 3.2 or something like that. And people are like, oh, I saw it wasn't Rails 4, and so I'm not interested. <laughs> and it's like, that's yeah. that's the least important part of the video. And so like we're updating it anyway, because you know, that's, you know, people want it. But people get very hung up on, you know, language of choice, you know, version numbers, things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You have to plan for that, right? If you want to create a product or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, yeah, people always want the latest version. That was the same thing with my Rails course. Everything that I teach in there is not specific to any Rails version, but I did have to update it to Rails 4 and Ruby 2, although it doesn't make any difference. Right. But I, I, you use that to promote a new version. You say, hey, a new version out right, with exactly. Rails 4. Yeah, so I mean, kind of we'll, a, we'll certainly do that. So you Yeah, know. so it's a give and take. So It's hard to argue with what the customers want. Sometimes you just got to give it to them. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> so how is the Great Code Club going? Oh, it's going great. It's going great. There was a big spike in uh, subscription initially, I guess, uh, because the sort of Great Code Club is people subscribe. Each month I give them a new project. Uh, to work on. For example, the first one was to build a 2D game, was to rebuild Pong. Uh, latest project last month was to build an emulator, so a virtual machine to implement a very old chip called Chip 8, so you can emulate, like run some ROMs, like uh, you know, a Super Nintendo emulator, that sort of, sort of thing. Yep. So you choose a project each month. Yes. Like, I yes, want you yes. to code this yeah, so in that's any language. The, that's the pitch. No, in JavaScript. In JavaScript, okay. I, pre- I do present the project in JavaScript, uh, but the so the goal of this is to get people to code their own version. So you know, either if you're a beginner, what I recommend people to do is just try to port my code to 
a different language or even like if you're just really getting started just try to rewrite in your own style or whatever mm. in javascript the same as you're watching the video i also provide the code i think that's a good way to get started okay so you so you say it's the beginning of the month here's pong i wrote it in javascript here's a video of me walking through the code and explaining it yeah and then you say you know either you know rewrite it in, in javascript rewrite it in your favorite language you know add some features you just say like just hack on it basically yeah, yeah, and there's a so there's a lesson video, very short lesson video at the beginning, mm -hmm. explaining the basics that people need to know before they jump into the project, and then there's a live coding or screencast session in which I recode the thing. Uh, so gotcha. But, so they can watch you build it from scratch. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's yeah, cool. So that's the whole point because uh, that's what I like. That's what I like to do, and I also that that's how I learn things. So I. Yep. I, that's how I want to teach things too. So, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the live coding element uh, as a way of teaching developers. And I've, yeah. I'm sort of known for preaching the, the virtues of that a lot. Yeah, I love it. I love, I, love, I love it very much. And I love doing it too. Do you basically just turn the camera on and, and code it and say, and then like, you know, ship them the recording or are you doing a lot of practice runs first? Yeah, you know, that's the thing that I have been shift. I've been trying a new way of doing things. I'm curious what you what you do, too, because uh, what I've been doing with my classes a lot is that initially I would practice the code a lot. So I do the same. I did the same thing initially as I would do for preparing for our conference, let's say. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you do that, you have to prepare yourselves to if you screw up, you have to get ready, have a plan B or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I did recode the project several times, 10 times, 20 times, sometimes. It took a lot of time for the classes that are very long. Uh, so I would just record. And I, when I did videos, I would just do the thing in one shot. Mm -hmm. So recording the thing, if I screwed up really, either I would start from the beginning or, well, I would just start from the beginning all, mm -hmm. all the time. Okay. So it was very time consuming. But yeah. I, at the same time, I really, I kind of um, like the vibe that I get from this because sometimes I would get excited, right? I would code a part and I would say, oh my God, so we got it. Like it's working when people would see it evolve and would see my reaction. Yep. And now I'm kind of moving away because I have to produce a new video and try, I'm trying to up the quality too. I, I do now voiceovers where I record the code, my live coding session, and then I do the voiceover and do some editings and freeze frames mm -hmm. and whatnot. And I, I like doing it too. Uh, it's taking me less time, but I kind of feel I get less excited because I don't know. Is there something that I say, hey, it was more exciting maybe in my voice or something that I, when I was doing everything in one shot. And now it seems less exciting, but I feel like the quality is better. So people mm. say, hey, they feel like it's better quality, but I feel less exciting. I don't know. Mm. That's what, do you, what, do you, what approach do you use? You do voiceovers or one shots? It sort of varies. So, like, like you, if I'm, if it's for a conference talk, I will do it dozens or you know more of times because I want it to go very smoothly because I know I'm time limited and I'm in front of a bunch of people and I know it's a high pressure situation. But we had an interesting experience recently. So we record a weekly video show called the Weekly Iteration, uh, and often we will actually write code on it, do live coding. And we had an episode where we got stuck for a good ten minutes. And the show is supposed to be about 30 minutes maximum. And we like, you know, we're coding along, making good progress. And then all of a sudden, like, that's weird. And it was weird for like 10 minutes. And it was, you know, postgres date issues. And oh, shit. we're like on camera and like kind of like jammed up and like, this is terrible. Uh, and so we eventually got through it and uh, got to the end. And then so we're like, okay, well, we can't use that episode, obviously, because, you know, we, it, we, were, we were stuck for a long time. And we look pretty dumb. And so, but we, we put it out anyway and just put it, posted it on our forum and said, like, you know, we, we rejected this episode. Is it useful to you anyway? Like, and what do you think of it? And the response was unanimously positive. P 
people were like, we like watching you struggle. It's good to see people actually get stuck. It's good to see how you get out of trouble and like what yeah. you do when you don't know what's going on and, and like the thing is not working like it's supposed to do. And so I think there's a lot of value in, in both. Like I think yeah. the, the yeah, polished conference presentation is, has its place. And also, you know, I'm, we're just doing this and wow, we're, we're stuck. But like you can see us squirm and, and how we try to get unstuck. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, but at the same time, I, w I guess if you were to get stuck on each episode, uh, people will say, "Well, what the heck? Well, why am I learning from you?" Because yeah. maybe that that's kind of the pressure that we put on ourselves as teachers or content producer, right? We want the thing to be perfect, and it's kind of our, like you said, initially said we, we you rejected the video, be I guess because you were not feeling very confident right. about the video. It's the same thing. I want my videos to be perfect or mm -hmm. I wish them to be. So it's hard when I kind of publish something that I think is not perfect at the same time. Yeah. And, and, and that was my initial impulse was to like, you know, hide that mistake basically, or that struggle. But then yeah. I've been trying to be better about that lately, especially with new programmers. New programmers don't understand that that sort of thing happens all the time. And yeah. so like, I've seen this with like uh, the people we train in our boot camp. It's like, you know, they get upset because like they're stuck and they think it's them. They think it's their fault. And so whenever I'm in front of a group of like new programmers, I, I pretty much always tell them like being stuck and having a thing not work that you think is going to work is basically the, the normal state of a working programmer. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. it's going to happen to you almost every day, probably for, you know, for some period of time. Sometimes you get through it in 10 seconds and sometimes you spend a whole day on it. Yeah. Um, and so if that happened to me again, I think I would release it immediately without even thinking about it, because I think it's good for people to see that even experienced programmers, even the people that are teaching have the same experience and this happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's right. A lot of people are getting trained using screencasts now. So they, they think like programmers just get, oh yeah, I'm going to write a project. Vroom, here you go. No bugs from exactly. the first try, which is not the case. So there's a value. I think you're right. There's value in showing the like, the failures and whatnot. But I guess it has, it has to be properly introduced, right? Because if you show them the first screencast people see is you failing <laughs> right in the middle, I guess you're going to have lots of upset people and whatnot. So it's kind of touchy. Yeah, I think I think you need a balance. Yeah, yeah. Almost totally. ideally, it'd be like, you know, you can watch this version where I, I went through it perfectly or this version like where I was, it was practice run number five and I totally blew it. It almost yeah. would be cool to see both those. But like, I, that's an interesting point you raised, which is like people are learning from screencasts these days that are like highly polished, you know, all mistakes edited out. And like, the, and we do that with a lot of our screencasts. And like, you know, if you think that like Gary Bernhardt's like destroy all software, he would do his things like, you know, 20 or 30 takes until they were perfect. And then he would mm. do them all in one shot. And it looks like he's just like flying at like a hundred miles an hour through this problem without, you know, needing to think about anything or making any mistakes. Yeah. And it gives this impression that like, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. I think of course, that's yeah. a dangerous sentiment for uh, for the industry to to take on. I think, as especially for the for new people. Yeah, that's the touchy part about screencast. So that's why also I like to do like live classes too, because people get more. I guess that's also why people pay a much higher price, mm -hmm. right? So it's four hundred dollars, a much much higher price than let's say screencast or books, whatever. Is because people really can see you code and debug in real time. They can ask questions and if they don't feel like it's kind of a like pairing, but just one side of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, honestly, the first time that I did the class, I would say, oh, I'm just going to try it. But I don't really understand why people would uh, like this format. But then as mm -hmm. I would do it, I would understand, yeah, there's a value into it. And I started to attend other people's class and would see like the value into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the rough breakdown of your income these days between, you know, your different products and your and your school and whatnot? Um, so my main, main part of my income now is the club, the Great Code Club. Yeah. 
but also the the classes but that's the thing that i'm trying to balance right because i'm doing spending more time or on the code club i can't i have less time to teach my classes i'm trying to balance things mm -hmm. so what i did recently is last week i did a sale on the recordings uh, i usually prefer to teach it live but i kind of needed a boost in revenue mm -hmm. <laughs> before summer so that's the real reason right so let's not hide it so when yeah, you, sure. that's your that's your income that's what you make a living and you have a family you have to find some ways so i did a so i thought i'm just going to make a sale and cut the bundle all my recordings class recordings together and make a summer sale before the summer mm -hmm. so something that i learned from past years is that during the summer there's going to be a big fall in revenue, like in the mm. end of June, beginning of July, people are all on vacation, uh, so they're not going to attend a class. So I would try. Oh. So usually I would kind of get cut off at that moment, and I would just plan to do a class right in the middle of summer and get screwed over because people would not attend. Mm. And so I learned from that. And so the uh, my approach this year, uh, which has been very successful, is to teach class, but right before people take the. Uh, usually it's like middle of June. After that, you're it's too late. So you have to do it before the middle of June. So that's what I did with the recordings. Yeah, I hadn't even been thinking about the seasonal effect of on sales. Like I'm looking at our revenue numbers all the time, and that's a great excuse. It's the summer, you know. It's yeah. Don't worry, revenue honestly. will start growing again in uh, August. I'm I'm positive. Yeah, and I think I've, every people that I've talked to that sell info products, the same thing. Mm. Like it goes down, and you're like. Oh man, no, it's done. My my business. I have to find something else. I right. have to get a job, and then you you get back to September, and boom, it just starts to climb up again. Mm. So it's ups and down. That's part of the game. So mm -hmm. you have to get used to it or find some tactics, right? You have to find some solutions to that. So that's what I did with my summer cell recording on the, was last week, and so once again, it was the same trick that we talked about earlier. Like you put some urgency, like you said, it was just for last week, so people had to buy before Friday. And you could save like a bunch of money. So that worked really well. Mm. If you were going to give a quick summary of advice to someone that wanted to take the route that you're going by selling their own products, what, what, what's the, what are the most important things that you would tell them up front? Well, my, my friend Amy Oy has a very good analogy and it's uh, stacking the bricks, right? Mm -hmm. So you, a lot of people, they see people that are, well, I, I don't consider myself like, well, I consider some of my parts successful, but I do see like some very successful people or some people that are very successful with their product and say, oh, like a, kind of the overnight success, right? They see the success and don't see all the work in the, in the back. So before I was able to like sell my first book, I did lots of open source before that. And before my open source, before I wrote in that I got very successful with open source, I wrote lots of open source, which was not successful before that. Mm -hmm. So you have to start somewhere and i would recommend recommend people like uh, i see lots of people today try to write a book as their first step into making money online i don't think that's a good uh, the first step i think you should start with just trying to provide value to people and try to understand what is providing value so that's the first thing you should focus on not trying to make money mm -hmm. maybe it's open source maybe it's just providing uh, writing a blog and providing free advices you have to understand like because it's something that he it's not uh, something that, that you're born with, like understanding how you can provide values to other. You have to learn that skill. Mm -hmm. So you have to either writing a blog, either giving advices for free, like give that for free and understand, oh, now I'm making the life of others easier. And after that, you can try to 
uh, get a feel of how much that is worth. Mm-hmm. Once you know why, once you know that you combine those two, you can make your first product, right? So you know how much values you're giving to those people, and you can know how much money you can ask. So you can do some experiment if you want, but very first step is just try to put value out there, like create some stuff that has some value to other people. Try to experiment with new things, and that's the other thing too that I see a lot of people making as a big mistake is they try to. It's good to copy, like we said initially, but don't like just blatant copy. Like each time that I make a product, I do copy from others, mm. but you try to make a twist that is going to make people stop and think, right? So you, if you just do, a, oh, it's an ebook, like uh, I'm just copying like uh, the other people, it, they're just, just going to ignore you because it's the same thing. But if you do a special twist that is a little bit different, it's going to make you a remarkable, right? Just people making work, making a remark about. Cool. I think that's a great place to leave it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, so uh, thanks very much for coming on. It was good to talk to you. And I've been a fan of your work for a long time, so it's nice to thank finally you. Uh, Likewise. to meet you. Well, thanks. So today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 105. Thanks for listening.